Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Unconventional Soldier, a military podcast brought to you by two British Army veterans in association with ISAR.com. Thank you for downloading another episode from the Unconventional Soldier podcast, which aims to record the history of the British Army's STA patrols unit through the voices of the veterans who served in its ranks. Tonight, I'm talking to David Jones, who will cover the troop commander's perspective of the unit, including how the troops in 3, 2 and 5 Regiment were organised and tasked the pressures to get more volunteers through selection, the widening of recruitment and the attachment of SAS captains to the troop. We'll finish off how two separate troops were brought together to form firstly 7-3 Sphinx Special OP Battery and finally 473 Battery. And at the end of the podcast, we'll do the usual with Desert Island Dits and we'll cover David's choice of book, film and luxury item. But before we start, I'd just like to say this is our sixth podcast. And we're averaging about 500 downloads per episode, which is great. We would like to break out to an even wider audience. And the best way to achieve this is by building a profile on iTunes through the reviews on that website. We currently have 14 on that platform, but 30% of our downloads are from Apple devices. So we could do with a few more and we have the potential for around 150. So if you're enjoying the series, we'd really appreciate a review, hopefully a five-star one. Uh, and that will help increase our audience engagement. So as normal, we'll start off with our guest military biography leading up to when they join the unit. So David, please tell us a little bit about yourself. I decided to join the Army in 1981 while on a year's experience as part of my industrial chemistry degree. I was lucky enough to be assigned to do research at the Royal Military College of Science in Trivenham, and I lived in the officer's mess as a long-haired civvy. I quickly realized chemistry was boring, and the officers doing the in-service degrees all seemed to have an exciting life in the Army. It may have helped that as a skydiver at the time, I was told that if I could get army sponsorship for my final university year, that I would go on to Florida, adventure training as part of the British team in the World Collegiate Championships. Luckily, I did so, and I was commissioned in September 81 and had a month's free skydiving that Christmas. I joined the Royal Artillery as one day I wanted to get to 148 Battery, and because it was more technical than the other choices. My first regiment was 2-9 Commando, 7-9 Battery, as gun position officer, followed by 148 battery, and then special OPs as troop commander of 5 Regiments Troop. The only op tour was Cyprus as BC-79 in 95. Subsequently, however, I did 10 months in Kandahar in 09 as a Canadian. Just to explain that, I went to Canada in 97 from Commando Battery Command, 289 actually, as an exchange instructor in gunnery. Managed a second exchange tour and stayed, joining the Canadian Artillery in 2003, and I've been in ever since. I was posted to the troop, I assume, to bring my small patrol experience from 148. So, David, what was the connection to 148? You, uh, when you opened up there, you said that you know, 148 was where you wanted to go. What, what sort of put you onto 148 as a unit that you wanted to head to? I think I'd seen some artillery promotional material that uh, had a, a naval gunfire guy doing all this exciting stuff, and I thought, that's what I want. 
And that sort of inspired you to. Yeah. Okay, then. So I think most of our listeners know that the commando course is um, pretty demanding. Um, could you just give us an overview of what it was like, sort of including the physical tests, and also just cover a little bit about the selection procedure to get into one for it? Yeah, sure. Um, the 30 miler is, of course, the signature test for the uh, commando course. But uh, I did the course just after the Royal Artillery Young Officers course, as 2-9 Commando was my first posting. It involved an intense beat-up in Plymouth and then the course itself in Limpston with the Royal Marines. It included tactical operations on exercise, with speed marches included, usually to and from the exercise, as well as standalone physical tests. After Sandhurst and the Young Officers course, it seemed at times like more of the same, as we were also critiqued on our infantry tactics too. The course was hard, naturally, but I was pretty fit in those days and equaled the record for the Tarzan assault course. The next time we did it, it was the test, and they gave me a colour sergeant to beast me round to try to beat the record. But the cumulative effects of the days in between meant I was actually slower, so no record for me. After a couple of years in 7-9 and on promotion to captain, I requested to go to 148, where, as I say, I'd always wanted to go. I'd been up to Hereford for the SAS officer acquaint week, but before the minimum time one had to serve before attempting selection. I told them my aim was to go to 148 until I had that minimum time in and then do selection, and I think that helped me get to the battery. However, I suffered a detached retina resulting from a brick in the face at Sandhurst during the Northern Ireland training phase, which was only picked up during the diving medical at 148 as I was slated to be the diving officer. That put paid to both military diving and SAS selection for me. To get into 148 at that time, one had to complete the commando course, naturally, and then additionally, para-selection, known as P-Company, just as an extra physical step. I had to wait for a year after joining 148 for my repaired retina to be up to attending, although in the meantime I did the various courses such as forward observer and forward air controller. In fact, I was already parachute qualified from 7-9 battery, but as you can imagine, being an officer wearing a green beret on parachute selection run by the parachute regiment meant I had a great deal of extra attention during it. <laughs> Understatement. I only wore my wings once I knew I'd passed, of course. The next CO to command 2-9 Commando, Graham Kerr, removed the requirement for P Company, saying why would he let the paras essentially decide who went to one of his batteries? Now, every naval gunfire team was commanded by a captain, but had a Royal Navy signaller as a more specialist. Everyone in 148 up to that time had to complete P Company after the commando course, including these signalers who stepped off a ship and got on with it. And even the chefs, too. Massive respect to those guys. Interestingly, one joined the SAS and later served as an advisor to 473 Battery. Yeah, it's a, it's a very small world. Was there much of, um, was there much of a kickback to the whole, uh, the colonel getting rid of P Company's part of the selection course? Did it cause much yes. of a furore? Yes. And even today... Uh, in the in the battery Facebook group, there's a lot of discussion about you know it, those days were hard, those days were good. Uh, yes, people felt that it was a retrograde step, but maybe he had a point. He also had enormous credibility because he was a, a very long-serving SAS uh, officer, so he came with understanding. Yeah, I mean, I remember talking to one of the lads from Two Nine who was in the battery, and he said that uh, if I'm right. He was known as Stretch. That's correct. Because, he, because he's always pushing the regiment that extra bit further. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so he's, um, yeah, he's, he's, he was well known for um, pushing people. So it's interesting you mentioned One for Eight because not only did One for Eight influence, influence you, it influenced me as well because prior to me joining the Army in 85, I read a book called Faultless Commando by Hugh McManus, who was an officer in One for Eight. And that book is about One for Eight's operational tour down in uh, the Falklands War. And in the late 80s, he also wrote a book called The Scars of War, which is probably about the first book I ever read on PTSD. And because uh, back in the late 80s, early 80s, nobody ever knew much about PTSD at all. And it was very much a case on if, what you, if you endured something bad in operations, you're just expected to crack on. So was he there in the battery at the time you were there, David? No, he'd left when I joined, um, but most of his party remained in the in the battery for, for some time, so I, I knew those guys quite well. Yeah, and uh, one for eight had a, had a good war and uh, were hugely influential, and I think that was the war that saved them as a unit, because just prior to that, I think they were talking about disbanding them, weren't they? You're absolutely right. I think it was John Knott, who was then the defence uh, minister, had decided to get rid of guns on ships because nobody would ever need them. 
yeah, politicians getting it wrong again. The same mistake they're probably making with main battle tanks in the British Army at the minute, talking about getting rid of them as well. So um, I worked with the Canadian Infantry in Bosnia, and I was always by the, impressed by the professionalism. And I know lads that worked with them in Afghanistan have said the same thing. So from your experiences in both, what would you say were the main differences between the British and Canadian armies? Actually, they're quite similar in many ways, which uh, I'll be honest, makes uh, going from one to the other uh, quite easy. easy. Um, but especially with our shared history and very similar organization, we're, we're really quite quite similar. But without being too critical of the British Army, um, I would say that the Canadian Forces looks after its members in a very much better manner. And although I left the British Army and joined the Canadians in 2003, that comment is based upon four years in the UK on on with the Allied Rapid Reaction Corps headquarters in Gloucester, which was a British-led organization. And I just felt that the, the people weren't given enough uh, support or consideration in some of the decisions that were made in, in careers and uh, with regard to family life. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, you see that all the time, the way the Americans look after it, the way the, the Canadians look after their people as well. I think too often now, I've been out of the army 13 years now, and looking in on it, you can see that it's very staid. It's very traditional, though it likes to think of itself as forward thinking. And I just think it promises a lot, but really delivers. And there's a lot of people fall through the uh, the cracks that, that could do with being looked after a bit better. Um, Kev can't be with us tonight, unfortunately, but he was saying to me that a few years ago, he linked up with the Canadian Peace Support Training when he worked with MOD. And this is about looking to the preparation of civilians going to, civilians going to operational and hostile environments. So it was a great experience for Kev. And he also had one of their senior instructors come over and put him, and he, that instructor from Canada, went through the British training. So he's seen quite a, a semi-operational side from the civilians. He's seen the military side. But just sort of going back to 473, does the Canadian Army have anything like 473 battery? Well, uh, talking of the... Uh... PSTC uh, course for civilians. My wife had to complete that course. It's called the High Threat Environment or HET course in order to come and live here in Beirut. It was very challenging and realistic, but she thoroughly enjoyed it. Now, with regards to 473, funnily enough, a proposal was made by someone who'd come across the battery about 10 years ago to form a similar organization in the Royal Canadian Artillery to mirror the capabilities. But we only have three field regiments and one general support regiment so it was pretty clear to me with my special OP troop selection experience that it would be frankly impossible to man, even if recruiting across the Canadian forces and being able to keep any selection standards. There would also be great competition for volunteers with the Canadian Special Operations Regiment and JTF2, the Tier 1 soft guys. The idea did not progress, which I believe was correct. Yeah, and I think increasingly that's going to be a problem the British Army is going to face with its, its shrinking mass because we're around about 78,000 now. And you think the how many people attempt SES selection and, and commando courses and para courses. I was talking to somebody the other day there and they're saying a lot of the, the batteries in the commando and para brigades now they are not even commando and para trained. They only have one or two now, so... I think that might even reflect this this problem you have with a shrinking army. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you're right. When you arrived in Germany, can you outline how the troops were set up at the time and how they were deployed? As each troop was part of a different depth fire regiment and under different command structures. So was there a common deployment procedure? And how did the, tra the troops maintain their interoperability? Or did they even manage to do that at all? Uh, the troops had moved from Hildesheim and essentially split into one in three, two regiment and one in five regiment, both in Dortmund, in neighboring barracks, actually. The troop in five conducted the selection for both troops, which I commanded. But having both troops under different command structures was obviously not good for interoperability, as after selection, they trained as each troop felt was appropriate. Also, there was huge duplication of effort as, for example, specialist recognition of hundreds of Soviet vehicles was being taught in both barracks rather than together. The deployment areas up north were similar for both troops, so it was not like there was even a different requirement for each troop's operations. Ultimately, Commander General Support at 1st Artillery Brigade, a colonel, commanded both 3-2 and 5 regiments, and that was the first common command level, which was just way too high. Both troops had sea containers located forward at 5 Regiment's old base in Hildesheim, which was then an Army Air Corps helicopter base. Each patrol kept its digging tools there, the small digger, 
a drill and a jackhammer, plus fuel and rations, as well as the Mexi shelter itself. And the idea for both troops was to drive there and then deploy to the assigned patrol positions, as Sammy explained in his podcast. So do you reckon this sort of default position was achieved due to the rush to get the troops up and running? Was it a lack of joined up thinking at a higher level or was it down to just rivalry between the two regiments and the two troops on the ground? Uh, certainly there was rivalry between the regiments. There's no question about that. Although the uh, rank and file of the, the troops got on very well because they'd gone through 19 weeks of selection and training together. And that created great bonds between the guys who ultimately ended up in different troops. Uh, and I think that carried on throughout the rank structure as people got more senior. Uh, you would know a lot more about that than, than I would. But it was just not very good. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I think the more you reflect on it, and as we're doing these podcasts, there's just some aspects of what we're doing. You, re, you realize now, looking back on it, as you're a bit older, a bit more cynical and less naive, that a lot of it wouldn't have survived contact with the enemy. Even just to the extent of digging in and getting away with that initial deployment. Um, I don't think there was any sort of deception plan included at a higher level. It was all been done on chance and a bit of potluck is, is how I see it. Would you think that's a fair thing to say? Yes, you're absolutely right. Um, I don't recall any kind of deception or plan to protect the guys and clearly digging in with all the mechanics that uh, the other guys have gone through in the different podcasts uh, was a massive undertaking that could easily be seen by uh, maybe people out walking their dogs or whatever. Um, but while hope is not a method, we had a lot of hope in those days. <laughs> yeah, it was, yeah, exactly. And I think and, and, and part of that has always been a downfall of the British Army. Uh, I think you've seen that in Afghanistan. Uh, you've seen it in Iraq in recent years where, you know, get in there, crack on and get the job done. And sometimes a bit of pause for thought about what you're actually taking on would have been quite useful. And I agree with what you're saying about the, the rivalry between the two, the two troops. It was always healthy and the relationships are always spot on. And I think even that right up to troop commander level. And I know that when we did become a battery, most people were looking forward to it. So it's interesting you're talking about 148, uh, the Commando Brigade, the Para Brigade, and all those units have a selection process. And any unit that does have a selection process is always going to be undermanned. So did you ever come under any pressures to ensure that the patrols were fully manned? I certainly did. Um, I'll have to explain the background. For security reasons, the troops' existence and role were not advertised. So as a result, they suffered from a lack of awareness in the wider artillery which at the time was the only source of volunteers. And this therefore meant a lower number of soldiers attending selection. Of course, that then lowers the number of people who are inevitably going to pass. On the other hand, everybody knew what the commandos in Paris did because they advertised heavily. And there's no doubt they took many possible troop members away as a result. So do you reckon that the lack of a maroon or a green berries reward for doing a course I and mean, obviously the kudos goes, that goes with that was a problem. I mean, it took a lot of effort to get into the troop, but there was no real reward to show for it. You know, you, you got the badge, but that was very low key. But also on the flip side, to be honest, that sort of little known aspect of the troop and the sort of um, the nicheness of it did attract some people. But just going back to my original question, do you think that that lack of maroon or green berry type thing did hold us back? Uh, yes, there's no doubt. The lack of official recognition at that time did count against our recruiting ability for sure. But the fact it was in Germany did appeal to some people. And in fact, we managed to recruit a number of great long-serving special OP members from both the para and commando artillery regiments. And the badge, as you mentioned, it was approved by the Army Dress Committee during my time as OC. And yes, the dot is in the middle. That's just a message for some current debate. Um, I also campaigned very hard for higher pay. I think it was band three, as I recall, but I don't remember if it came in before I left because the guys certainly deserved it. In five regiment, the guys were authorized to wear floppy peaked hats instead of berets and also did not do any duties. Now, that's only very small recognition. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's um, but band three came in for junior NCO, full screws, corporals, bombardiers, and uh, band six pay also came in for uh, right. sergeant patrol commanders. So in the end, the pay did come in. I think most people were happy with some paracord and some smocks as well, mind, but <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> even smaller reward. 
So how did you open up recruiting to other units? And can you also cover the initiative to recruit soldiers directly from training units such as junior leaders? Yes. And bearing in mind that previous joining requirements stated that volunteers should have been in the Army for you know at least two years before attending selection. Correct, yes. Um, the Royal Artillery, in an attempt to improve the numbers on selection, which would potentially result in more passes, of course, uh, came up with a plan to send soldiers from the junior leaders' regiment straight to selection. I think pass rates for the whole of selection in the 19-week course at the time were around 14%. However, this experiment with young soldiers under 18 had predictable results, as nearly all of the 15 or so quickly dropped out, simply due to not having either the experience in the field or especially the mental maturity to cope with such an arduous selection and course. There were a few notable exceptions, though, and they went on to become outstanding members of the troops and Royal Artillery. Gunner Miles Amos was one of those who made it, and he had a very bright future, but he was sadly killed by an IED in Northern Ireland where he deployed on secondment from Five Regiment with you guys in 320P Troop. Yeah, and we'll cover um, Northern Ireland in a couple of podcasts with Neil Hogg, uh, and we'll, we'll cover that contact as well, which not only was uh, Miles Amos killed, but also Steve Cummins from 32's Troop. Of course, yeah. uh, I didn't envy those young lads turning up. I mean, the average age in the troop at the time was probably mid to late 20s onwards. And this idea was heavily opposed. So not only did those young soldiers have the hill to climb of selection, they were also not very welcome in in the troop lines by the experienced members of the troop. So for the guys that did get through, they did absolutely amazingly well and hats off to them. It's interesting to note that uh, of those four, obviously one was killed in action in Northern Ireland. One made one officer two. Another made W01, one also class one, and the final one also made W01 and then onwards to a late entry commission. So you're right, uh, those guys were quality blokes. But it's also a hallmark of the troop standard that it produced a huge number of W02s and W1s, way out of proportion for a small unit, and many of them also went on to commission. So I think, again, that selection process did mark them out. And I think for me, and you'll know this from your time in 148, and not not disparaging to any other soldiers listening, but you can get a fit soldier and you can get an intelligent soldier. But to get a fit and intelligent soldier can often be an uphill battle. And I think that's what units like 148 and OP Troop were, were looking for. Do you think that's a fair statement? Absolutely. I mean, the technical challenges of getting through that 19 weeks of uh, really detailed technical training. You went through it. I only did selection. Um, very, very demanding. So how did the artillery look to improve the pass rate then at this point? Well, <laughs> the, the, way that, the way that most people look at it is to examine the selection itself. So um, they initiated a detailed event by event study of selection, which, of course, I felt personally uh, responsible for, uh, and the training, which after its publication resulted in much pressure on me to make selection easier. Now, nobody really said it has to be easier, but what they said was the same thing. We have to have a higher pass rate. Um, So we did remove some events uh, that that they felt were simply arduous without product. Um, uh, The however long six, eight hours in the back of a Bedford after being bugged out was one of those that got taken out. It was actually, I think, sleep deprivation, but it wasn't uh, sold as such. And um, although those events were removed, the standard of soldier graduating from the whole course and joining a troop did not lower afterwards. Yeah, we've had a long discussions in bars, and I'm no doubt these discussions go on nowadays as well. And, and we mentioned previously that on the initial courses, it was select out rather than train in, yeah. and a lot of good candidates fell by the wayside. But I also think that was generally a hallmark of the army of that time as well. You look at basic training. Yeah. Um, when I was in basic training at Woolwich, you know, you're not talking parachute or infantry training, parachute regiment or infantry training here. Guys just fell by the wayside, and there was huge amounts of wastage back then. But I also think at that time, you know, people were queuing up to join the army, especially post Falkland, so the army could have its yeah. pick of who it wanted, uh, and it had to change it with, without a doubt. So most of, um, with a little extra training encouragement, would have made the grade in the patrols, and, and that's obviously why the selection was trained uh, was was changed in order to give people a bit extra training and encouragement to get through. So, what did you do throughout the uh, Royal Artillery to raise awareness of the troop and increase volunteers? To 
to raise awareness um, and ultimately numbers attending selection, we conducted a recruiting tour, probably late 88, of all gunner regiments in Germany and the UK. The CO5 regiment would make an introduction. I then gave a presentation on the troops selection, training and role. And a few of the guys critically ran a static display and could interact with soldiers themselves afterwards. And we would address the whole regiment. What we found were many soldiers who'd been denied applying, despite artillery regulations stating that such applications for specialist uh, selections, including special OPs, could not be blocked by the chain of command. At the same time, we opened up selection and service in special OPs to other units of the army outside the Royal Artillery, which did result in some exceptional non-gunners joining. And you know those guys. However, we also had some disasters, utter disasters, as some volunteers saw joining the troops as a way to avoid being sent back to UK with their battalions on the then regular rotation of units to and from Germany. Needless to say, those people did not have the motivation to succeed. Yeah, and I remember those guys um, got found out quite quickly, but I suppose maybe perversely, more guys going back might have put more pressure on you to do something about selection because people just see 20 guys turning up. 10 of them might not have been there for the right reasons, but then leave. But would, did that also have an effect on how it was perceived about the course? No, because some of these guys ended up in front of the CO on CO's orders. Um, and so they weren't failures because the the team had deemed them unsuitable. They actually committed things that meant they were sent back to their units uh, with disciplinary uh, issues as well. And, and it was those sort of people that you just didn't want. Right, got you. I mean, the, the OP troop and 473 batteries always uh, been ever adapting to the the climate as things change. So when the wall came down, we found new roles. When the lads went to Bosnia, you know, they adapted. Uh, later on in the 2000s in Iraq and Afghanistan, they adapted again. So it's very much uh, an evolving unit who's able to adapt very, very quick. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But did the lack of numbers, from your perspective, ever put the existence of the special OP troop in question back then? No, uh, quite simply, never. And I think the reason for this was that the senior officers on the exercises had seen what they brought to the operational and tactical table. And there was no way that they were going to lose those eyes out front. No way. Yeah, it's interesting because it's keeping the right people on side. And uh, as officers, as we became more mature, I think getting officers further up the chain of command also to fight a corner probably helped as well. So I remember back in Germany, late 80s, we had regular attachments of late entry commissioned officers from 2-2 SAS Regiment. Uh, why was that? Well, as already covered in previous podcasts, the troops had specialist NCOs from the paras and SAS attached as embedded instructors and advisors. I think this exposure gave Director Special Forces an idea for a solution to the difficult task of appropriately employing an SAS regimental sergeant major as an officer when he was commissioned. So we each... Both troops, that is, received a commissioned RSM for a year who would wear uniform and act as if they were Royal Artillery captains so they could cut their teeth as officers and then go back to 22 SAS after an appropriate gap and with credibility as officers. Naturally, they were immense resources for the troops, especially for me with additional selection input and mentoring. Yeah, I remember those guys. It was an amazing opportunity for us as young soldiers to have these hugely experienced SF operators with uh, impressive operational records to assist in training. But how did they find life in a very traditional environment like the British Army of the Rhine and, again, uh, a gunner regiment? 
I think it was uh, very much a culture shock. Um, <laughs> and we had a number of interesting occurrences because, of course, they had to conform as a good outwardly looking artillery captain. Um, they had to conform to the rigid rules of Germany soldiery. And this was often alien to them. For example, one SAS captain who decided without telling anybody, he'd just pop up to Berlin, which was still in the East at that time on a visit, but did none of the necessary a lot of application paperwork. And that resulted in being, in being arrested at the border, which was uh, a little bit of an admin issue. <laughs> yeah, that sounds like some of the guys that came across. I mean, I remember going to exercise in some nervous moments for patrol commanders as their deployment orders were assessed by a long-standing SAS veteran with a gaze and inquisition that would cut through them like a laser. And often I was quite happy just to be a, a bod carrying the, 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 the radio bergen. But they also added um, some valuable insights. I mean, we're in the bar one night talking and, as usual, moaning about the rigid dress standards that were a pain in the backside. And uh, this was often made worse by the fact that the troop was often the focus of the RSM who had objected to our, shall we say, casual approach to uniform, hair and sideburn oh, yeah. length. <laughs> so we're always uh, you know, getting the wrath of the RSM. But I was talking to one of the, the SES officers, and he made the observation that we were a covert unit and shouldn't draw attention to ourselves on training, ops, or even in camp. And he made the point that, but what was what? What would we gain from pissing off people and giving them the ammo to make your life difficult? And I, you know, and a lot of what you've seen made sense. And he said that when he'd been in ops in places like Borneo and Malaya, they used to tidy themselves up. And they, you know, they'd stand off from a, a village when they're doing a bit of hearts and minds. They'd sort the ripped uniforms and they'd go in looking a bit in order rather than just emerging from the jungle with a kit hanging off them. And I, I took that away with me later years. I was when we were attached to different units in Bosnia, Canadian as well as British. And that was one of my things I'd say to the guys, we should be able to drive in and out of these uh, compounds and nobody should know who we are. You know what I mean? We should be like yeah. ghosts. And yeah. by doing that, you just blend in with your surroundings. So, yeah, that was a, that was a good lesson for me. So prior to the collapse of the Soviet Union, there was a project to modernize the stay-behind Mexi-Hide concept. I do remember little things like the development of a power management system and more advanced camera systems. Can you tell us a little bit about that, David? Yeah, living in a Mexi underground, as you well know, for weeks was not just extremely unpleasant, as Sammy outlined in his podcast. It was also very dangerous due to the highly ad hoc nature of the systems employed to support life. The air supply, for example, was pumped in by no less than a Land Rover heater blower motor powered by a car battery. Talk about Heath Robinson. And I don't, I don't believe there were even CO or CO2 monitors. The vision devices at the observation post were primitive, but uh, they were sort of current at that time. And the acoustic warning system was truly, as again mentioned by Sammy, a rubber pair of human ears that was strapped either side of a tree. They were actually quite good, David. They were actually yeah, I know. <laughs> they look like a trophy though, when you were holding them. I mean, <laughs> but none of the power for these systems was managed inside the hide holistically. And remember, this was supposed to last for three weeks. Yeah, I think um, we, we didn't cover this previously, but the, the Mexi site was also very difficult to manage externally to avoid too much sign. And often you'd have several antennas set up, which would be a giveaway if people got too close. It was made a little bit easier when we got the upgraded radio, the PRC319, and that gave us the ability to remote antennas away from the Mexi up to 50 metres. I think it was 50 metres. And in addition, if an OP was compromised, all the uh, enemy had to do was pick up the landline and follow it all the way back to the Mexi. So it had been very, very easy to compromise the Mexi itself. There was always talk that we would get Claymore anti-personnel mines for positional defence, but in true troop fashion, we also practised making improvised Claymores out of plastic explosive with nuts and bolts stuffed into large food tins we scrounged from the cookhouse. So finally, not only was it dark and smelly in Mexico, but it got incredibly hot and humid due to confined space and lack of circulating air, as you pointed out, David. And we often stagged on in T-shirts because you little to no chance of getting out of a hatch if you bump with your belt kit and a very long SLR in your hand. And it didn't matter anyway because a couple of grenades dropped inside would have uh, ended things quite swiftly. So I also know that the SAS Territorial Units used the Mexi as well, David. Do you just want to cover a little bit about that? Yeah, this this actually had a great spin-off benefit for the troops uh, because I think it was around 88. They, they used the Mexi concept as well. And in their case, assuming that they would have got there from the UK in time, um, 
that they would observe and conduct direct action. And they were looking for specific signature equipments rather than doing fire support, which was the troops' role, of course. So Director Special Forces initiated, and of course they had a, a large budget, a large project to make Mexi life safer and far more efficient and capable. Called Project Ephesus, it did produce power management systems and foul air monitors, as well as tiny microphones instead of the ears during my time. I also had the pleasure of flying back to the UK for the monthly meetings at uh, Special Forces HQ in London, which was a great bonus for a young captain. Of course, when the Berlin Wall came down, as you well know, Fergie, in 89, it put paid to the Mexi concept and naturally Project Ephesus ended too. I'd be interested to know, you know, as I said, back in those days, I was a, you know, a young Lance Bombardier Bombardier. And um, did, did you think the whole Mexi concept would have worked. I mean, we've sort of touched on it early and we've touched it on the podcast, but from where you, was it just a death mission or did you, do you think it could have, it would have been pulled off? No, I, th- I think it would have worked because there was a lot of careful planning going into the sites, uh, reverse engineering the Soviet artillery, as has been explained in podcasts before, so that you'd have an OP forward, either one or two, looking at what were quite strongly believed to be likely deployment sites for big targets. Now, how long the guys would have survived is another question, because, of course, there would have been echelon upon echelon of Soviets going over. And um, it, 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 it was, as you well know, a very fragile mission. And hence all the, uh, the, the banter about the, uh, the teddy bear with the noose regarding the uh, exfiltration or not. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, it was a great role <laughs> when you're 22 years old or 23 years old. That's all you yeah. care about. Yeah. <laughs> so... On Sammy's podcast, we discuss visitors, often high-ranking officers, coming to visit Mexis and, and the OPs on exercise. Um, what did they think of the role, and what was their reaction to visiting a Mexi that had been operational for a couple of weeks? Yeah, they were always very big fans of what the capability brought them tactically and operationally, and they were always impressed by the quality of guys they met. And <laughs> you talk about the Mexi and the frankly awful conditions they cheerfully endured to operate. Sammy's description of not giving anyone any clues about Mexi locations still gives me the shivers because leading visiting generals to a Mexi and hoping I could actually find it, something that was designed not to be found, uh, was, was very difficult, including once at night. Luckily, somehow I exceeded each time with a bit of luck. But I do remember one visitor, no names, but he was a very senior artillery general at the time who naturally wanted to go inside the Mexi for a proper look once we'd actually found it. As he started going down the ladder, I suddenly thought he would not fit because he was so fat, which would have been really, <laughs> really embarrassing because the hatch was quite small, as you remember. <laughs> he, he managed to cram himself in and he squeezed himself out again, but it was a tight fit. <laughs> yeah, I remember Rob, even just changing around the OPs, which actually Sammy alluded to, it didn't happen that often, but could be an absolute nightmare to get back and try and locate the the op hatch at night and um your worst nightmare would be you'd you'd start one of these exercises and as a sprog of the patrol the first point of call for you was the op and uh, if it was a very busy exercise and you'd a lot of troops passing overhead you could end up spending the majority of the exercise in the OP, which was yeah. exceedingly uncomfortable. I don't think we touched on the dimensions, but most OPs that are dug in underground, David, as you know, are probably about six foot long and about four or five foot deep uh, for tiny, tiny, tiny. For, for people. So a, a very tight fit as well for that. So with the two troops operating the way you described earlier, it's obvious that this wouldn't deliver an economy of scale or was even practical. How did the initiative to move two troops into a fully-fledged battery come about? Well, as I said, I came to Special OPs from 148 Battery, which was based in Poole with the Special Boat Service, who we directly supported and deployed with. It was miles away from Regimental HQ in Plymouth. Now, it's a bit of an understatement, but let's just say it was not always easy for the Special OP troops, being very different, to be based inside a depth fire regiment's headquarters battery. And I could see how the OP troops being based away could work just as well as 148. More important was the fact that the troops' deployment areas were near Hildesheim, and that was where the patrol equipment was stored, as we've discussed, necessitating a long drive to just get to the kit and then to the deployment sites. Now, selection was run by my troop, and then we divided successful soldiers between 5 and 3-2, which I always felt 3-2 thought was perhaps biased, although frankly it was not. 
Add to that the fact that everything was duplicated in both troops, such as the troop quartermaster stores, and critically, all the daily continuation training. It just made so much more sense to join as a battery, harmonize the doctrine, the operational readiness, and actually be based near the deployment area. I spoke to both CO of 5 and 3-2 regiments about this, but they would just not entertain the idea. And I think they feared losing some of their best sportsmen, particularly I remember the rugby and boxing guys, as naturally <laughs> as naturally, one regiment would then take the battery under command and inherit the other troop. In other words, one of them would lose out. It's amazing now, how sporting prowess affects an operational decision. <laughs> that's, that, that, that's Jones's theory. <laughs> In early 89, a new commander general support arrived called Colonel Kit Faith, and he came to five regiment for a troop brief by me with patrol commander Sergeant Mark Thigpen and Bombardier Mark Martin also present, and we went actually inside the demonstration mexi that we had dug in in camp. I explained down there how we had all this replicated training and administrative duplication and how we could be a battery in the original location of the first troop in Hildesheim, actually in the area of operations. Now, he loved the idea, and clearly after high-level Royal Artillery consultations, both COs were informed we would be forming a special OP battery in 5 Regiment, but sadly staying in Dortmund. But at least the main aim was achieved. I became the first battery captain and my posting was extended for a few months at the end of 89 to put it together. And the rest is history. The actual name bounced around a bit, though. CO5 wanted H battery reformed as another letter battery to match the others in the regiment. Now, there were a lot of uh, RHA um, uh, sort of views on that as well. And I, I won't get into that with letters versus uh, number batteries. Maybe just worth explaining, we've got a couple of non-military listeners, David, so just getting a little bit geeky here. Can you just maybe explain why why letters and numbers matter to different regiments? Yeah, all – I think I'm correct. All Royal Horse Artillery regiments have uh, letter batteries, and virtually all of the field regiments, as in not the Royal Horse Artillery but just the Royal Artillery um, had numbered batteries. But five regiment had, what, P, K, Q – and HQ, but was not an RHA regiment. Um, and again, this is just Jones's theory, um, but H battery was not reformed. There was a rumor that uh, the CO knew it had more silver and that it would grace the regiment's tables uh, better. <laughs> <laughs> but we were informed it would be 7-3 Sphinx uh, battery, and then it became 4-7-3 uh, Sphinx for reasons uh, unknown to me. I think that but was I, mainly just to save uh, the number of another battery that probably was going to go into suspended animation. Possibly, yes, you might be right. It was during the time when we lost a lot of uh, regiments and, uh, and units. I went down to 3-2 Regiment during the formation process to sort out the secret paperwork in their uh, secure and bring anything relevant back to 5 Regiment. Most of it, of course, was duplication, um, uh, the reason why we came together as a battery. But written on the letter to both COs directing the formation of the battery and its creation in 5 Regiment, the CO of 3-2, Barry Fairman, a wonderful character, had written, that is Jones off the Christmas card list. <laughs> <laughs> I know Barry Fairman well. I was fortunate yeah, enough to serve under him as CO when he took us to Northern Ireland. Uh, an absolutely outstanding commanding officer, right. a, a right. real real character. And he was later um, honorary colonel of 3-2 Regiment when I was there as well. Uh, yeah, so he's an absolute character. I could tell a few stories about him. Absolutely. So for the historical junkies out there, uh, 7-3 Battery was formed in 1990 and became 4-7-3 Battery two years later. And one of our listeners asked if there's any animosity or rivalries when the two troops came together, and this was definitely not the case. Uh, as, as David pointed out earlier, most of the troop members socialised together regardless of uh, regiment and troop. In addition, we saw it as strength in numbers and good for survival, so we're all very, very keen to um, become a, a fully-fledged subunit. What I do remember, though, is that when we came a battery, the CO5 Reg wanted a formation parade, which any <laughs> decent patrol soldier was horrified by. And uh, a, a guards sergeant, I don't remember which battalion he was from, Coldstream or Scots, whatever, but he turned up one day and he was drafted in to try and get us ready. And we almost reduced the poor sod to tears because such was our ineptitude... <laughs> And in fact, our ineptitude was only surpassed by a complete lack of effort. And he tried to march us down to the uh, the hairdressers to uh, get a load of haircuts. And he was sort of faced by a mutiny. So we did manage to get through a formation parade, but it did not look, pr did not look pretty at all. 
Were you there for that, David? Had you left at that point? No, I left. Uh, that was after the golf, wasn't it? I'd left. Oh, yeah, it would have been. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, I got posted before the golf. Mm. It already, my position, next position as an agent was already vacant for the months that I stayed to help put the battery together. All right, got you. So, as usual, we're going to finish off with Desert Island Dits, which is the guest pick of favourite military book, film, and luxury item. So, David, what are your choices? Uh, the book is, I'm going to cheat, it's a two-part series, um, both very detailed and large, but truly excellent accounts of Canadian soldiers in World War One. Uh, it's by Tim Cook, uh, who I believe is the curator of the Canadian Military Museum. Uh, volume one is called At the Sharp End, Canadians Fighting the Great War, 1914 to 1916. And the second volume is called Shock Troops, Canadians Fighting the Great War, 1917 to 1919. Uh, absolutely brilliant. They were fighting as uh, Dominion troops under the British at the time. Uh, I highly commend it to anybody. Uh, if I would be allowed a fiction choice, there's a World War I theme here too, but it's a truly Canadian book. Uh, it would be Three Day Road by Joseph Boyden. And what, Film, what's, sorry, just uh, what, what's uh, Three Day Road about? It's about two natives who join up. Uh, it's, it's, um, they take three days to canoe down to the nearest uh, recruiting station and they join up and they both become snipers. And it's a tale of how one of them becomes addicted um, to um, the uh, amphetamines or whatever they were being given at the time. And morphine it was morphine. Um, and how the other one is his partner, but gets worried. And, um, and then I won't spoil the story, but it's, uh, it's beautifully told uh, by the returning, the returning guy. Is it based on any sort of fact at all or is it all completely fictionalized? I think it's vaguely based on just some of the detail fact of what life in the trenches and what working as a sniper was like um but it's the guy's first book it's quite breathtaking really good really when, good. Was, when was it written uh i'm not sure but i think probably only a few years ago oh okay what i find remarkable that the canadians both in the first and second world war was that there was no conscription uh from my understanding and certainly i know that was the case in the second world war but you know they were all volunteers yeah and a very big divide uh between the, the, the French Canadians and the English Canadians because there was a perception that there was, they were fighting England's war. But, right. um, but that might have been politicized over the years. To, it may not be that true, but um, yes. Um, yeah, and I know Dieppe left a bit of a scar on the Canadians as well, didn't it? Because I think they took the absolutely. brunt of the casualties at Dieppe. But, uh, yeah, absolutely. But if I hadn't been for Dieppe um, and the lessons learned at Dieppe, the D-Day landings probably wouldn't have gone as well as they did. Yeah, correct. So film? Film would be Das Boot, which is the unbelievable tension in a hunted submarine. Uh, it's quite frightening. Um, yeah, brilliant. I ha- I'll have to watch it again. Yeah, they've just remade that on uh, Sky as a series. Ah. Uh, but I haven't I haven't seen it, but I totally agree with you. Das Boot is, is unbelievably good. And it's one of those services of the war with the... With the uh, Germans, it's that's but it's probably the only book and film that, that's well known about. And uh, I was reading a, a sort of a revisionist take on Germany's ambitions in the war, and they're saying that rather than concentrate on capital ships that impressed the world, they should have concentrated more on their U boat fleet because they had all these capital ships like the Bismarck, but they had no real ports for them to go to and service them and look after them. And uh, there was a lot of money wasted on that, whereas if they concentrated on the U-boat fleet, there'd been a far more effective use of resources. Yeah, I think you're probably right there, yes. So luxury item? Uh, Anyone who knows me knows it would have to be wine. Now, uh, having listened to Sammy's podcast, if we're on the same island, I'll swap him some of my wine for some of his cigar. (laughs) (laughs) And there's a a definite trend here, David, of the troop lads. Pete Walsh was, is taking cherry brandy, so it's going to be a bit of a piss up in this, uh, this <laughs> island if, if, if he's marooned at the same time. <laughs> Would be great. <laughs> so my recommendation this week is a book called Unreasonable Behaviour by the photographer Don McCullen. And Don McCullen was one of those generations of war photographers that, that sprung up through the 60s and 70s who, I mean, you just don't see war photography in any shape or form now, in my eyes, because... Post-Vietnam, people at Don McCullen probably helped this because post-Vietnam, the film and the photos of Vietnam probably helped lose that war because it got home to the American people, the suffering that the the troops are going under. 
And you've certainly seen places like the Falklands where the press were heavily controlled and had to be accredited and you know, all the output was severely constrained. I suppose it's getting a little bit easier nowadays because you've got things like camera phones and social media and there's instant communications. But uh, Don McCullen's amazing. He started off when he left the RAF, he took some photographs on bomb sites of local gangs and he sent them to the Times and he got them published in the Times. And from there, he just started going to war zones and he went to places like Cyprus in the early 60s when there was the, the British were fighting the Ioka terrorists, went across to Cambodia and Vietnam. And not only does he capture photographs in Vietnam and these conflict zones, he also has shot some excellent photography in the north of England, especially in the 60s and 70s, where he captured a lot of the poverty that's prevalent in those areas. And there was a brilliant documentary about him last year where he went to Syria, to Palma and places like that. The guy's about 80 years old and he's still going around taking photographs. It was very, very moving. So I definitely recommend Unreasonable Behaviour. MD has not had a chance to, to look at that. So thanks to David and to the listeners for your support and suggestions. And please keep them coming in. And as usual, our email and social media links are at the bottom of the show notes. On our next pod, our guest is Neil Hogg. And on it, we'll cover Banner, which was a name given to the British Army's longest ever campaign in Northern Ireland. And we'll talk about pre-deployment training and what it was like an operational tour of Londonderry in the late 1980s. Uh, JD, as he's known, will dis- discuss the contact on that tour that killed two special observers, Steve Cummins and Miles Amos, and his subsequent struggles with PTSD, of which little was known about back then. And about a year and a half ago, we had a bit of a 473 battery reunion down in Salisbury and um, I met up with JD and we we're having a couple of drinks at the bar. And one of the reasons I'm so keen to get him on the podcast is he told me the treatment he received back then, which is almost criminal. The attitudes from senior medical officers and just generally, it's absolutely appalling. So that's one of the reasons I'm keen to get JD on that. So looking forward to future episodes then on Pod 8, we're going to have a little Christmas book special with our guest Simon Vincent. I think you'll know Vinny quite well, David. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And each of us... Outstanding soldier. Say again, sorry? Outstanding soldier. Yeah, absolutely. So living in New Zealand now, we're spread to the four winds. You're calling in from Beirut and Vinny's out in New Zealand. Yeah, I can't tell you how proud I was when he came top of the Bombardier Leadership course at uh, 1RHA. One R- one Especially for being the scruffiest get in the world. And being a, they told the CO, no, it has to be him because there's no one from one RHA who we can legitimately say is better because they were, you know, it was brilliant, brilliant. As MD knows, Vinny, outstanding field soldier, scruffiest man in camp alive. (laughs) (laughs) So on that podcast, Vinny will pick his top five favorite books and me and Kev will pick our top five as well. And on pod nine, our guest is Jimmy Morham, who's a former chief instructor with the battery. And he'll discuss his deployment on op corporate during the Falklands War with the Parachute Regiment and the changes he made to selection in order to improve the content and the structure. I'm looking forward to pod 10. We'll feature Chris Lincoln-Jones, who is BC when the battery deployed in op Granby during the first Gulf War. And we'll discuss deployment and operations and what it meant for the battery at the time. So thanks again to Nick Beale for his continuing support and sponsorship to this series and offering technical support through his company, ISAR. And so we'll see you next time on The Unconventional Soldier. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.